Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy, entitled Contempt for the Cool, was dedicated to, of all people, my mom, Mrs. Amy Zorns. You see, growing up, my mom would always tell me, Now, Ben, you must have a contempt for the cool. When Eric found that out, it coincided so well with the message he was working on that it became the sermon title. Oh, that we might cling to Christ, no matter how scorned we are by the world, and no matter how uncool following Jesus may be in the eyes of those around us. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Contempt for the cool. You know, I, I guess if I was going to be dedicating uh, this message, uh, Ben has sort of been in cahoots with me on this one for the title. Uh, and I think he's, he's wanting to uh, make sure that I, I make a dedication unto his mother uh, for this one too. Because this is a quote from Mama Zorns, uh, okay? And uh, I... I was struggling because one of my titles that I had for this message sounded too similar to another title that I'd had, and that was uh, Uncool and On Purpose. Isn't that a great title? Uncool and On Purpose. But right as I was about to submit it to Sandy to have her build the keynote, I realized that I'd also done a message called Stable Born and On Purpose. And so people are going to think we lack creativity here at Ellerslie. And so I submitted it to uh, Sandy and Ben, and I was just like, I, I submitted it as uncool was the name of uh, the message, uncool. You know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just sort of bland. And so Ben submitted contempt for the cool, which you'll see why, because uh, I have a quote from Mama Zorns uh, coming up. And Sandy had a great one, which is equally as good. This is a very difficult thing to choose between, and it was dying to be uncool. And I, I like that. Wait till you hear the rest of this message, because this message is about dying. This is like a study in dying. Uh, and so dying to be uncool, that, that fits well. But this is the one that won out, and you'll see. Here's the quote. <clears throat> Benji, listen to your mother. You must have a contempt for the cool. And so you can see, how old were you there, Ben? Three? You could even see it in his hairdo, even back then. He was attracted to the cool. And so so there's our quote. Uh, Mama Zorns to little bitty Ben Zorns. Uh, And for those of you that don't know that might be listening to this some other context, uh, Ben Zorns is our worship pastor and our student life director. So uh, we get a good laugh out of that. It doesn't look anything like Ben, by the way. I don't know if it's because he's lacking some fur on his face. I'm not exactly sure what the deal is. But the concept here is have contempt for the cool. In other words, you're not attracted to the cool. You're on guard against it and actually have a snarl against it. That's exactly opposite of the way we pop out of the womb. We are attempting to curry favor with this world as opposed to literally having a contempt for the things of this world and a true delight in the things of heaven, which are at odds one with the other. The definition of cool. Now, this is excerpted from chapter 9, which is called The Secret Sauce, in the, in the book, The Bravehearted Gospel, which I wrote. Uh, beware. This chapter contains the word cool. I have been warned by my younger constituency that such a word is only used by people that are wholly uncool. But as you will see in the upcoming pages of this book, being uncool might not be such a bad thing after all. Cool Christians, they seem to be everywhere nowadays. Yes, I realize that according to the words of Christ in almost 2,000 years of history, becoming a Christian has traditionally meant being rejected, persecuted, and despised, a life dead to this world and its applause. 
But there is quite a powerful host amongst the rank and file today that are laboring to change this definition. After all, it is a bit dour and unattractive, and since Christianity needs to try and keep up with the growing forces of Islam, it seems we need to give Jesus' image a little makeover and pump a lot more moolah into the marketing and publicity coffers of the church and a little less into the dead-to-sin and dead-to-this-world department. For the sake of our conversation, let's define coolness. Coolness is the measurement of favor you curry from the world, society, and your peers, and is the gradient of attraction that you hold in the eyes of those who value things of this earth. In other words, Jesus wasn't cool. But I've got some ear-tingling good news. Even though he wasn't, it now appears that we can be. We all know the world can be cool, but it seems according to recent discoveries that the church can be cool too. And if you're wondering how you too can become a cool Christian, I'm going to give you everything you need to succeed in the corridors of modern Christianity. Now that could be sort of a little plug for the book Bravehearted Gospel, couldn't it? Because I'm not going to go any further than that. I give the recipe for coolness. If you want to be a cool Christian, I give you the recipe. It's like nine ingredients. Powerful stuff. Long and short, you're going to notice that I will hold in contempt and I will mock the notions of Christian coolness. The two are like oil and water. Christians are not cool. Did you hear me? Now, I'm not saying that amongst ourselves we can't say, you know what? Well done. In other words, we can be attracted to the nature of Christ being exhibited in and amongst ourselves. But this world is not attracted to the nature of Jesus Christ. This world will treat the nature of Jesus Christ in the same fashion it did 2,000 years ago. It will crucify it. Anyone who loves darkness more than light will not like the light shining out of you. They will despise it, they will mock it, and they will persecute it and ultimately crucify it. Get used to it, Church of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity 101. We are antithesis to the world's system. Jesus is other than, which means holy. He is not like this world. He doesn't share in its model. He doesn't share in its style. He has his own bearing and his own nature. He does not kowtow to this world to try and aggrandize himself, make himself feel attractive in their eyes. He doesn't change who he is To make himself favorable. He is who he is. And he doesn't alter that one bit to gain one applause. What's amazing is we have all been bent. We have not changed the image of God, but we have said this is who he is. And we find him attractive. So it's amazing. Somehow, someway, we love light. I don't know exactly how it happened inside of me. However, it did. The things I used to be attracted to in this world, because I'm the classic guy that loved the world, loved the things of this world. And now suddenly, I see the distinction between them. And I find myself wholly and completely attracted to another realm and the king that rules that other realm. The idea of cool. Now let's just break down the notion of the word in the first place. Cool. Cool is a temperature between hot and cold. It is not ardent or zealous, not angry, not fond. This is the definition, by the way, out of the 1828 dictionary. Okay, not out of the modern, you know, 2012 Webster's. This is the 1828 Webster's. 
It is not ardent or zealous. It's not angry. It's not fond. It's not excited by passion of any kind. It is indifferent, not retaining heat or light. That sounds like something we want to be, isn't it? Isn't it funny that the very word we use to describe one in stride with culture, one in stride with the systems of this earth, is cool? Isn't that an irony? I mean, it really is intriguing to me. To cool means to become less hot, to lose heat, to lose the heat of excitement or passion, to become less ardent, angry or zealous or affectionate, to become more moderate. If you're a cool Christian, what have you done? You've become more moderate. You're not one of those extremes, one of those wild-eyed guys like Eric Ludy. He's not cool. By the way, did you hear me? I just confessed I'm not cool. I'm not trying to be either. See, it's very freeing when you no longer have to try to be cool. I'm not trying to be. It's not like I'm trying purposely, you know, to hike up my pants and wear white shoes with black, or white socks with black shoes. You know, or put on a brown belt and black shoes. You know, there's certain things that you attempt to at least be in order so you don't trip those looking at you. You know, where they're like, what in the world's wrong with that guy? And they fall over, you know, as they're trying to study your weird style. It's not to make a statement in the opposite direction. It's to not make a statement at all. You're not making a statement for or against styles. You're making a statement, if anything, for Jesus Christ. See Jesus in what I'm doing. See Jesus in how I'm speaking and how I'm living. So that's cool. Now, most of us would not, by that definition, if it were attributed to Christianity, would we associate it with it. You know, we're like, well, yeah. But that's not what the word means when I'm using it. Listen to Revelation 3, speaking about cool. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So let me do a little translation. We're going to replace the word lukewarm with the word cool. Same thing, by the way. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are cool... And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So now here's my uh, edited down rendition. Because you are cool, I will vomit you out of my mouth. How's that for Eric making a point? Yeah, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Now you could say, well, that's not what I mean by cool. I'm not meaning lukewarm in my Christianity. Are you sure you're not? Are you sure you're not meaning that? Because when you're currying favor with this world to be attractive to this world, you're sacrificing something. What are you sacrificing? Well, let's do a little study in that. Remember what this message is about? Contempt for the cool? Dying to be uncool? There's cool and there's uncool. The amusing conjecture of a modern-day Christian leader. This happened, I don't know how many weeks ago, just a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to attempt to cloak this story a little, but there were some... Ellerslie graduates who were uh, in another state uh, in a very large house owned by a very well-known Christian leader. And this man felt it was necessary to sort of help these poor, struggling, uncouth Ellerslie graduates along because they really didn't have the look. They you know, you, you have some good stuff that you're doing, but if you really want some expert consultation, see, he's a Christian consultant, so he helps ministries get cool. Isn't that quite a, a, a ministry in and of itself? Help ministries get cool. It's like the anti-ministry. 
And so he was looking at him. He sat down, all the graduates, and he was sort of with one of those, you know, head tilts, compassionate sighs. He looked at them. And he began to talk about how, you see, there's cool people and there's uncool people. And he said, take my son, for instance. My son is cool. And as a result, my son is going to gravitate towards cool people. Because he's cool, he'll gravitate towards cool people. By the way, I'm giving you a very important principle of cool. Cool will gravitate towards cool. There's no doubt about it. And this guy's saying it himself. Cool will gravitate towards cool. And cool, on the opposite side, will gravitate towards him. Okay, if you're cool. If you're not cool, you're not going to attract the cool. Okay? So, this was the lesson that was given. Some of you are just not cool. And I think the term was uncool. And that's not bad, but you see, you won't be able to marry someone who's cool, but there will be someone uncool that will probably marry you. <laughs> I'm dead serious, okay? I mean, this happened. That's why I, I literally, I got the story. I literally did an interview over the phone to get this full story yesterday because I was like, okay, I just need to hear it because this is going in my message. It fits perfectly. <laughs> So there was one other thing that was said, and uh, let me, I'll read the first one. Cool people marry cool people, and uncool people marry uncool people. (laughs) Praise God. Okay? Uh, Now look at this one. This is another line that was used. You might want to put a little distance between you and Ellerslie. I mean, I don't know much about them, but the feeling I get is that they are a whole bunch of uncool people. Listen to this. You see the last line there? You know homeschooler types. By the way, I wasn't homeschooled, okay? But I will gladly associate myself with the uncoolness of homeschooling. Sure, I'm fine with it. You give me people who are dead serious about Jesus Christ, who don't care a whit what this world thinks, and I'll side with them. And I don't care if you came out of the public school system or the homeschool system. I came out of public school system. I'm here to declare to you, I'm uncool and proud of it. I don't care about the world's standards of what they are defining as this is what we want. If the church would just give us this, then maybe we'd be attracted to Jesus. If you want Jesus on your terms, you don't want Jesus. You get Jesus on his terms. Buck teeth and calic and all. Jesus doesn't look attractive to this earth. There is nothing in his form that is attractive to us. In our natural sense, we are not drawn unto the God of the universe. Instead, we despise him and we separate ourselves from him. And who do we ally with? The world. That which is an enmity. That which is the enemy of God is what we're attracted to. We are the problem. Not God. There's something wrong with our sense. You know, we could talk about senses. Sense of humor. Sense of style. We always around here talk about a sense of honor. You know, there's a sense of manhood. There's something that is a sense. It's like, that's a manly thing to do. And there's a sense that you'd say, a man would stand up right now. A man should do something about that. Yeah, it's a sense of manhood. Sense of honor is what we would call it here. The same with sense of femininity. There's something that's not appropriate for a woman to do. Well, how do you know that? 
It's because you've been groomed in God's kingdom pattern that you know that. Okay? But there's also something we could call it this. A sense of cool. By the way, I have a sense of cool. And my alarm is constantly going off. In violation. Code 307 violated. I know it. I know what I'm doing. I grew up in the system. I know that I'm violating it. It's not like I wake up in the morning to purposely violate the code of cool. I just don't care about the code of cool anymore. I used to. Believe me, I used to. And for most of my Christian life, I did, at least at some level. And you could say, are you completely free of it? Uh, You know, there's still some residual effects every now and then. You know, where I turn red-faced and I realize, dear God, I still care, don't I? You know, it's, it gets lesser and lesser. Let's just put it that way. I'd like to say I'm completely free of it, but then there's moments when I realize, when my face turns red and I recognize that, yes, there still is a little of that in me. The importance of cool in Christianity. Okay, this is a letter I wrote to this man, uh, and I never sent it. Uh, Leslie looked over my shoulder and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to get some material for my sermon on Sunday. And I was going to, I'll just show you the letter I was going to write. I changed some things in it, but not much. Uh, I only changed names and things like that to make sure you didn't know. I called this guy Barney. I figured, <laughs> I figured that would be appropriate uh, for this uh, particular topic. Uh, Dear Barney, thank you so much for taking such wonderful care of our Ellerslie graduates a couple weeks ago. I appreciate your heart for the vulnerable and the weak and commend your exhortation to the body of Christ in the arena of adoption. I'm the president of Ellerslie Training in Windsor, Colorado, the ministry that you counseled our Ellerslie graduates to separate from due to our overall lack of coolness. Don't worry, I can completely laugh at the description, for I must admit I notice it too. There definitely is a lack of that which is hip, socially fashionable, and cool in our ministry. We seem to share some very similar Christian passions as far as soul-winning, orphans, the vulnerable adoption, etc., but I'm not so sure we're in full agreement on the issues of Christian coolness. Since I love a good discussion, I was wondering if you would mind sharing with me your basic philosophy on the importance of coolness in Christianity. I'm putting together my sermon for this upcoming Sunday, and your input would be very interesting for me and for those in my college and congregation to meditate on. I love to have a good laugh, and so please don't hold back in being as blunt and as straightforward as you want to be. Meanwhile, I won't hold back in being equally as blunt and forthright. Sounds fun, doesn't it? (laughs) Sincerely, Eric Ludy. I didn't send the letter, okay? Leslie thought that it wasn't going to be received quite as um, well as I was hoping it would. You know, it's just like, hey, I'm just wanting to open a dialogue. And she said, he's going to take offense to that. I didn't send it, okay? There's an unspoken rule. The cool with the cool, thus the cool do not gather with the uncool. You know what this creates? This creates a panic in some of us. You see, some of you that... Maybe we're raised in more of an uncool home. There's a certain pressure you feel because you want to fit in to this earth. And yet, you don't feel like you have the pedigree. If someone ever asks you where you were schooled, like what school did you go to? You can't wait to go to a normal college so you can reference your college instead of the fact that you were homeschooled. Please, no one ask. Please, no one ask. You see, it's a stigma, and we've carried it around. I'm not saying, I, I say we, but there's many things like that in my life, where if I give the accurate answer of what's real about my life, what did you do on Friday night? And these guys got drunk, these guys went to a party, these guys were hanging out at a bar, and they look at me, and I'm like, well, you know, um, 
got together with some friends and prayed. It's like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with them? Let's get it straight here. Okay, the fact that you on your Friday night stay home and play games with your family might sound uncool in translation to this world, but guess what? There's something beautiful about it. But follow me. There is the fear of being found uncool. It's a paranoia of being found unattractive. I want you to measure your soul as we're going through this. Are you struggling with the desire to be found attractive in the world's eyes? Now, some of you could justify it and, and say, well, I want to be attractive in at least someone's eyes, otherwise I'll never be married. Okay, and so I can understand that. But I want you to realize that I find Jesus attractive, okay? And I find the things of Jesus attractive. And I find those that are focused wholly and completely on Jesus attractive. Now, I, I recognize I'm a little odd. But you know, there's a lot of people like me. You know, there's a lot of people here at Ellerslie that are like me in that regard. You don't need to worry about appealing this world, appealing to this world with your sense of cool. You focus on Jesus Christ. One of Leslie's great statements that she shares with girls. Girls, if you're going and to the meat markets to try and find your guy, you know, the ones where all the single people are hanging out, you're not going to find a godly man. If you want to find a godly man, you have to serve Jesus. Go where Jesus leads you. Guess what? It might be the backside of some, you know, nation where you're, you're in the alleyways and you're, you're taking care of the weak and the, the lonely and the lost and the heroin addicted and you're washing their feet and guess what you bump into? Someone else who is called also. You know what? That sort of man in, in this context or that sort of woman is the one you want to grow old and gray with. One that is being spent for Jesus Christ. Now, that might not translate very well back at the class reunion. Oh, I remember going to my class reunion. I was really struggling because I still had a little element of cool. Uh, at least a cool perception. I, I still had the, you know, the, eh, eh, the alarm. And so I called myself, instead of a minister of the gospel, in my, you know, in the, I don't know what it was, like a brochure that everyone got with all the updates on everyone, I called myself a motivational speaker. You could... Yeah, you could look at Eric and go, coward. And you'd be right. I was a coward. I, was, I still had the sense of cool, and I knew that what I did would not translate well into that environment. But I tell you what, a, a class reunion is a great testing ground for where you're at with Jesus Christ. Because if you can't stand up and represent Jesus Christ clearly before your classmates, what makes you think in that great day of testing when all the world is howling at you saying, sit down and you have to stand up to stand for Jesus. What makes you think you'll stand up in that day? This is small. This is nothing comparatively. The fear of being found uncool. I don't know how many of you have ever struggled with that. I have. I mean, most of my growing up years, I spent most of my life thinking about how I could look good for this world. I mean, why do we spend so much time in front of the mirror? What are we thinking of when we're in front of the mirror? You know, why I, I used to part my hair down the middle. Don't, don't use your imagination of how bad this looked. <laughs> Parted it down the middle and feathered it back. You guys, I don't know if you guys remember feathering. Back in the 80s, we'd feather our hair. 
And, it, you know, it would lay there, and then you'd spray it. So it wouldn't get out of place. Always bothering me when someone come up and ruff, ruffle my hair. Hey, get away! You know, it's like, get, go straight to the bathroom. It's like, what in the world? I can't believe he did that. It was feathered, okay? I spent, I mean, it must have been 45 minutes to an hour getting my hair perfect, you know, with the, the mirror holding it like this and checking it from every angle. I had to look a certain way. I had to wear a certain clothes. And you guys remember what that's like? There's certain brands that say something to the world. Back in uh, my senior year, it was Z Cavaricci. I don't even know if they exist anymore. I have no idea. But they put their label right in the most awkward spots on the pair of pants. Okay, I'll just put it that way. And my mom did not like Z Cavariccis. I'm like, everyone that is cool has Z Cavariccis. I spent all my money on these things. I'm wearing them. You know, it was that type of attitude. And my mom was sort of like uh, Mama Zorns. Uh, she didn't use the term contempt for the cool, but I tell you what, whatever words she did say, you know, it was very similar. My attempts at cool. Deep bassy voice. How you doing? What is it about a deep bassy voice that's translated as cool? See, my voice is just this. You know, I don't know if it's higher pitch. I don't know what my voice sounds like. I don't know how I'd describe it. You don't really think about your voice that way. But for whatever reason, in my mind, it was a little too high. And there's something about showing a disinterested, you know, thing where your head sort of flops to one side and you stare at things other than what's really going on. You're like a cat. You don't really care about what's going on. That's why it's as cool as a cat, okay? And so you, you sort of act disinterested in everything, which, by the way, is the definition of cool. It is lacking any intensity or engagement in the matter. And so someone asks you a question, like, yeah, yeah. They do the same stuff, the same head gyrations, the same movements. It's the same cool. The same thing. When I see a young guy today, I'm always like, oh, boy, that's what I looked like. We do it, though, because we have this sense of that which is cool. And so I had a strut. I, did you know that I, I walked around like this? I can't do it with a microphone. I walked around with my arms sort of bow-legged out like that because Arnold Schwarzenegger walked around like that. And then later in life, I found out that the reason Arnold Schwarzenegger walked around like that was because he had muscles. I didn't, okay? So a little awkward uh, looking back on, you know, Eric Ludy strutting around. Uh, oh, it's just pathetic is what it is, okay? So if you're one of those cool kids, it's pathetic. <laughs> my terrible dream. I mean, this dream shook me to my core. I remember uh, in this dream, I was in some huge arena, and I was brought out into the middle, and all these girls suddenly looked upon me. It was just an arena packed full of women and young, young women. And they all looked upon Eric Ludi. And in one voice, this is what they said. Sick. <laughs> and it shook me to the core. I literally woke up shaking. Because my desire was to be found attractive and yet the chorus of young women in my generation was, this is disgusting. And his name is Eric Ludi. You know what that's taught me in, in hindsight looking back though? 
It's the weight of what I put upon the opinion of the young women in my generation. Why do I care what they think? But I tell you what, any of you, I'm speaking to all of us here, okay? I'm like the prime example here, yes. But think about how we are wired and how we are built. We are so concerned about what everyone else is thinking that it literally paralyzes us from serving Jesus Christ. And I want you to realize it's time to make a choice about who you serve. Do you serve the mob in that arena? Are you willing to make a choice in your life to say, and I don't care if they cry out sick. In fact, to say, I fully expect them to. I know the choices I'm making for Jesus Christ. And I know how this will be interpreted by the world in which I live. The art of branding. Now, I don't know how many of you have a background in corporate America or the uh, marketing, advertising. Advertising is built on a principle of branding. And so what you do is you take a concept or a product and then you brainstorm with a marketing team, an advertising team, how you can present your product to the marketplace in such a way as to have cachet value. Where it will be seen, it will be noted, it will be commented on, remarked, like, wow, great packaging, great slogan, great idea, the product must be good too. You see, the product could stink, but if you can brand it correctly, you can dupe the masses. Why? Because the masses are dupable. The masses have a sense of cool. You know that you will buy something in this culture simply because it has a pink ribbon associated with it. And if you want to go back in the annals of sermons, you can get pink ribbons and a bloody cross and you'll know my opinion on it. I'm not going to give that today. I'll restrain myself. But literally, people will buy the pink ribbon. Why? Because they know even at the checkout counter or in their lunch when they bring out the, what is it, the Dannon yogurt that's pink, everyone around them will say, yeah, politically correct. Well done. We know these things. There is a sense of this. That's how branding works. And the world plays upon your weakness in this area. The Marlboro man. The guy who's sitting there with his cigarette. And how many men have picked up smoking because of the Marlboro man? I want to be like that guy. As if it was the cigarette that made him cool. The cigarette's killing him. We have no perspective. How many people buy a perfume because of the advertisement? Well, look at that sexy woman. If she wears that perfume, then I would be sexy too if I had that scent. Absolutely ridiculous thinking, and we fall for it all the time. So the art of branding, convincing the world that you are part of the cool culture. You understand the cool, you drive the cool, you smoke the cool, you drink the cool, you listen to the cool, you spend your Friday nights at the cool, and you know the language of the cool. So let's do a quick test. Do you know those things? Do you know what you should be driving to be cool? Well, I think we probably, most of us in here, probably could come up with a few guesses as to that. There's certain cars that might hog a lot of gas, but guess what? They're cool if you drive them. They might break down after six months of driving and cost more in fixing them than it cost to even buy it in the first place, but guess what? It's cool. 
Do you know what you should, uh, smoking, driving, I mean, these are not necessarily things that some of you are even doing. You drink the cool, you listen to the cool, you know what type of music? I mean, there's even music that if you happen to like that musician and you bring it up in conversation, you know everyone's perspective on that. You might not even really like the music. You know how, how even young men are shaped in their attraction? When I was young, I remember looking across the room and seeing a young girl named Michelle. This is when I was, I think, first grade. And I thought Michelle was cute. And two of my buddies came up and they were talking. I remember them saying that they thought Michelle was ugly. I didn't say what I was thinking, but guess what? I questioned that which I instinctively thought. And I began to pattern my attraction around what other people thought. You ever notice these gaunt, skinny supermodels? Most men, when they first are in in kindergarten, if you've got a whole bunch of kindergartners together or first graders together, young guys, they would not find it attractive in the least. It is an entire generation that has been shaped by the sense of cool. A corporate turnaround. A study in the rebranding of the Volkswagen and of the Scandinavian region. The Volkswagen. I remember having a conversation. This is quite a while ago. Uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe, maybe a little less. But Volkswagen, when I was growing up, Volkswagen was ma-paw. Okay? If you have any sort of image, you don't drive, drive a Volkswagen. They had the, you know, the broken down Beetles, uh, you know, the Bugs. And then they had... Uh, VW campers, you know, and yeah, there were some people, you know, from the 60s that were still driving them, but they were a little cuckoo, okay? Well, what did Volkswagen do? Volkswagen rebranded itself, I think it was in the early 90s, I want to say, and maybe it was the mid-90s, but they rebranded themselves. So did Cadillac, okay? Cadillac was the old person's car, too. And then suddenly Cadillac and Volkswagen have these super cool uh, commercials, and then suddenly... It became cool to drive a Volkswagen. I remember watching it happen in my generation. I'm literally thinking, no, 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 that's, that's the old fogey car. And now it's like, no, it isn't. Have you seen my little bug with the little flower in it? <laughs> Dead serious. I watched it. It was a rebranding. Scandinavian region. It's almost like no one, if you are in, is going to go to the Scandinavian region. It lost all sense of coolness. Well, some band, I don't even know who they are, some band has launched into the stratosphere out of the Scandinavian region, and then there's some book, you know, by, you know, about a girl in a tattoo that came out that literally has made Scandinavia hip. So now it's hip, and all the hipsters are going to Scandinavia. Don't, aren't you embarrassed for these people? That they're so controlled by perception. If Scandinavia... It's so cool. Well, guess what? It was cool back 30 years ago, too. It's the same place. Just because a band came out of it and some guy wrote a book doesn't suddenly make it something different. We are being conned. And when we finally wake up to that fact and stop playing the game with the rest of the world, Christianity can be free from these shackles. Is it time for a rebranding? This is the proposal of the emergent church. Look what the church is. It's bucktooth. And by the way, I'm not that happy with the church the way it's been either. Okay, I'm not looking at it going, oh yeah, you know, a picture of health. No, it's like a dead corpse just sitting there, laying there. It's like, hey, wake up, buddy. Come on, stir yourself. 
You know, I'm interested in the church being the church, but not rebranding Jesus to be a different person. Jesus is God, and God does not alter, and God does not change. In him is no shadow of turning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not rebrand Jesus. He may not be popular, but you don't change who he is to try and make him popular. After all, he is not part of the cool culture. He doesn't talk cool, doesn't look cool, and doesn't live cool. You ever read your Bible? It is the most uncool book on earth. And most of us know it instinctively. I remember hearing about Charles Finney when he, he was a, a lawyer. And he used to always have a Bible in his office because he would interpret Blackstone's commentaries, which would reference the Bible all the time. And he never even thought about the Bible. I mean, it was just a book to reference and to interpret, sort of like just having any archaic book around. But then suddenly he became a Christian, and this man was coming into his office, and he looked and he saw his Bible on his desk, picked it up and stuck it in the top drawer and closed it. Like, wow, you know, I, there's something uncool about that book. I mean, when you think about just hanging out in front of people, or how about at your class reunion having a Bible and sticking it on the table? It's just like, you don't do that. Well, you would if you don't have a sense of cool, but if you have any remote sense of cool, you know you don't do that. Okay, the Bible is just an uncouth book. Mm-hmm. And so is Jesus, the one it talks about. I want you to realize, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to stare this issue square in the face. The brand of Jesus. Jesus has a brand, by the way. He doesn't need to rebrand, but he has a brand. Bearing the stigma. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a stigma. A stigma is a brand. You know, like a cattle brand? And the smoke comes out, and then the cattle has a nice little symbol on its, uh, in, its, in its leather. You know, that's, that's like uh, the way it's... That's what a stigma is, and that's actually a biblical concept. So Jesus has a brand. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That word marks is a brand. It actually is this word, stigma. Huh, same exact word as stigma. It is that word, stigma. This is what it means. A mark pricked in or branded upon the body. To ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander, branded or pricked or cut, into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belonged to. What master or general did Paul belong to? He says, I bear in my body the stigma. I bear in my body the mark. I belong to Jesus. The brand of Jesus, basically translated, is the brand of the uncool. The foolish things. Now, for those of you that are a little uncomfortable with this message, it's like, I do not like this all-out statement that we cannot be cool. I'm saying to you straightforwardly, you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to receive a brand, if you'll receive it. And this brand is, by definition, uncool. You choose. Do you want to be cool in this world's eyes, or do you want to be like Jesus? Because if you want the brand of Jesus upon your life, do you want the brand of the world? And it sears into you, and guess what? Everyone that sees you says, they're with us. They're with the world. Well done. Or do you want the brand of Jesus seared into your life, where anyone that looks upon you says, 
<clears throat> They're one of those. The foolish things. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We are fools for Christ's sake. Christ crucified is considered a stumbling block and foolishness. The gospel is called the foolishness of God. The things of the spirit of God, they are foolishness to natural man. Preaching is called foolishness. The preacher, weak, contemptible, unskilled, a.k.a. foolish. Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Another word used, idiotes, which means exactly what it sounds like. An idiot. One who doesn't appear to have any intelligence. What do you think Christians are looked like as in this world? Idiots. They truly are idiots. What? A, you believe that? I do. You're an idiot. In your mind, I'm sure I am. Are we the idiots? Are we the fools? In heaven's eyes, you know, God is the wisest, most perfect. God is not an idiot. Though he may look it to this world, he is not. And so therefore, you choose your reality. Do you want to pander after the approval of a system that is going to hell? Or do you want to be molded and shaped after the pattern of a system that is truly glorifying God Almighty? The all-important refusal, saying no to the cool. Listen to this scripture. I'm going to repeat this scripture, I think, about four times in the remainder of this message. You might as well get used to it. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, in other words, when he was grown up enough to make this decision, he was actually 40 at the time, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This word refuse in the New Testament is a very critical word, and you'll become familiar with it as we move forward. But I made it big just so you see it. He refused. Remember the title? I said the all-important refusal, saying no to the cool. You are going to have to say no and refuse something. You have to pick what you're going to say no to and what you're going to refuse. So by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I want you to realize how idiotic that is of what Moses did. Moses is literally in the position of power. Very likely could be Pharaoh himself in the years to come. He is known throughout the known world at the time as literally a conqueror, a military general with the brilliance and the deafness of like an Alexander the Great or a Napoleon. This man has everything, everything. But by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Who would do that? You could have everything, all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, and you could rule it. Instead, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. He's going to side with the slaves. The Jews were slaves. They were the rabble. You kick them. They're dogs. He's going to side with them? What? What are you doing, Moses? He says he'd rather, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Boy, that's a deep scripture. 
Aparneomai is the word. Remember that word refuse? This is the word right here. It means to deny, to refuse, to disregard, to reject, to forego. Now Jesus is going to pick up this word. And he is going to command each and every one of us to aparnomai. He's going to ask us to. But there's two things that we have to choose between. So by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused, aparnomai, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now listen to this line. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. That's like the stigma. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches. Does a reproach sound like great riches? You see, he was seeing something. That's why it says by faith he did this. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. You must refuse something. Will it be Jesus or will it be self? You cannot have Jesus and self. You see, we have a throne here. And we are sitting on it. And when we come to Jesus, we have a very clear sense that if we yield up this throne, we will lose our coolness. Coolness comes, by definition, from remaining in that position. When you're in this position, you can cater to this world's desires to their attractions you can do it but you can't do it if you relinquish that throne because jesus comes in and sits at the center of your life and now you start to smell like him now you start to do things that he would do oh no the whole thing's backwards let's rebrand this thing can we come up with a christianity that allows us to stay seated on the throne you must refuse something for Christianity to be Christianity. You cannot have it part way. You cannot remain seated on this throne and exalt Jesus Christ in your life. This is the word. You'll see it in here twice. It's big. It says deny. That's the word refuse in the, other, in the Hebrews passage about Moses. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Doesn't that sound like us? And so said all the disciples. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Now that's obviously a massive fast forward from verse 35 to verse 75. In other words, Peter did deny Jesus. And what did he do? He sought the approval of man. He did exactly what we do where he sided with self and self-preservation and self-protection over standing with Jesus Christ. What was Jesus teaching Peter in and through this? You need help, don't you? You see, if you're struggling with the sense of cool, and when a little girl comes up to you in the courtyard and says, are you with Jesus? You're like, no, no, I have nothing to do with him. I don't know who he is. A little girl. And you fell for that one. You see, your sense of cool is off the charts. Your sense of self-protection. You don't want to be identified with the criminal. Jesus looks like a criminal to this world. He looks like a vagrant. He looks like a homeless one. He doesn't have the look. He doesn't have the image. If you side with him, you go down with him. 
Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You follow Jesus, you get Jesus' treatment. Who's in? And that's the question of Christianity. We have tried to remake and rebrand Christianity in our generation. It's very easy to do because we're Americans. And there's no persecution currently on our country. There's no real suffering here. And so we're playing with the truth. And we want to fit into this world at the same time fit into heaven. You can't have it both ways. But you denied the Holy One. And this is the same word. This is the same word for uh, reject. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. How about you? Have you chosen Barabbas over Jesus? You see, Barabbas is, is that choice that allows you to maintain the status quo. Allows you to not have to get too hot or too cold. It's, it allows you to be lukewarm. You see, if you can do this, if you have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, there's great consequences there. There's so many dominoes that begin to fall over if you allow him to truly rule your life. Have we denied the Holy One of Israel? He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus, Jesus gives this prerequisite. And by the way, this is mentioned, oh, I don't know, three or four times in the New Testament. So I just picked one of the times here. Let him deny self. You want to follow Jesus? Well, then you deny self. Well, I, what's going to happen to me then? What's going to happen to my image? What's going to happen to my reputation? I mean, right now I have an in with the world. They're really attracted to me. Are you willing to forsake that? It says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. You know what a cross is? It's a humiliating form of death. It's not just a form of death. This is humiliation. At the highest levels, it's infamy. You're going to literally throw out your reputation daily? Uh, yeah, didn't, didn't someone ever acquaint us as Christians today with the fact that this just is Christianity? Take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, if I follow you, I might get treated the way you are treated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This isn't the cool way. Do you want Jesus or not? How precious is your coolness to you? Because you can't keep it and follow Jesus. For whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The dying. Remember Sandy's proposal for the name of this message, dying to be uncool? You're going to understand how perfectly that fits now. It's more than just a refusal of riches. It's a very real death. You see, spiritual death is a very real death. I know it's not the mortal death, you know, where you're laying on the, the ground and your body turns cold and starts to be eaten by worms, okay? However, we have downplayed the fact that we are called to die. When you pick up your cross, you are literally going to die. You don't hang out on a cross for fun one Friday night and then get down after a couple hours, you know, of joking around up there. Crosses 
kill people. So when you choose to follow Jesus, it is a death sentence. You no longer twitch. You're dead. It is no longer about you. It's about him. This is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Isn't that scripture a little too straightforward? You see, and whosoever does not bear his cross, if you are unwilling to bear this cross and come after Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. Fairly straightforward there. Are you dead as a doornail? You guys know where that comes from? I'll read it for you. This is Charles Dickens, The Christmas Carol, chapter 1. Now, I, I, I had a whole bunch here that I was wanted to read just because it's so well written. Charles Dickens, his first chapter of this book is hilarious. It really is. In the description of Scrooge, I'm going to be very straight to the point, And this is just for fun. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile. And my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. So, in light of that, I want you to think about your spiritual life. Is it true to say that it's as dead as a doornail? In other words, there was no questioning the fact that Marley was dead. He's dead. And then it goes through all the proofs of why he's dead. He did. That's what chapter 1 is about. It's literally saying Scrooge was there. He testified to it. He signed it. He's dead. Which is very important to Scrooge. Because Marley's coming back. And it's going to be rather weird. Which is why it's important to make it clear in the very beginning. He's dead. Dead as a doornail. Have you died? And I mean died. Because if you died, you should be dead as a doornail. And if you're dead as a doornail, there should be certain testimonies about your life. Well, if they were really dead, that wouldn't matter to them. That's a good point. You see, if you're really dead, you wouldn't be offended in that situation. If you were really dead, you wouldn't be tempted in that situation. If you were really dead, you wouldn't care about the style of your genes. If you were really dead, you wouldn't be craving those comforts over your God. Wait a minute. Are you really dead as a doornail? Or do you have a hybrid Christianity? One that keeps you alive so that you can foster your comforts. In the meantime, you're attempting when all is possible to give God whatever glory he can get out of your self-centered existence. Can self still be offended? Can self still be tempted? Can self still be self-absorbed? It's all about you. How many days can we spend thinking about us the whole day? Weren't we dead? I mean, could have sworn that yesterday I was dead, which is why it says pick up your cross daily. We have an amazing ability to come back to life, don't we? And not in the resurrection sense. Not in the rolled away stone sense. I mean Marley with chains on us sense. Where we appear with our chains on alive. 
Man, I thought this guy was dead. That's what we're saying about old Marley. Hey, I thought he died. We're rattling chains saying, Scrooge. (laughs) Remember Moses. Here's that one scripture that we had before. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, I wish we could somehow fully have the weight of that decision. And we could ponder it, just lay it out in front of us and say, Moses, look what Moses was willing to do. And then look at our little pathetic illustrations of holding on to our life. We want to maintain our position as Pharaoh's, what does it say? Pharaoh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I was going to say as Pharaoh's daughter. And for some of us guys in here, that was going to be a little awkward. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Why would anyone forsake the treasures in Egypt? You see, have you noticed, I haven't made a great sales pitch for why we should give up our cool. It's just I'm telling you, you need to. What kind of appeal is that? You're like, well, I know I need to, but boy, could you give me at least some argument of why I should forsake my life? My life's pretty good. Why did Moses do it? Why would anyone do this? What could possibly lure someone to exchange earthly comforts for affliction. You know, that's what he did. He had earthly comforts and he exchanged it for affliction. Why why would anyone do this? You could look at every true Christian and say the same thing. From the outside looking in, from the world's vantage point, they'd look at you and go, why are you doing that? Mary of Bethany, wait wait a minute, you have your spikenard, your box of alabaster, and you're going to break it? Whoa, Whoa, hold on. Before you break that, let's talk. That's worth a year's wages. And you're going to just break it open on Jesus? It's insanity to this world. Remember what Judas said? Judas was offended. Why is she doing that? Uh-huh. Exposed Judas's roots. He had the wrong source within. He reasoned different than the kingdom of heaven. And so do many of us. You're not supposed to just break open the spike nard. That's valuable in this earth. Well, isn't Jesus more valuable than any? thing in this earth? What could possibly lure someone to exchange earthly comforts for affliction? One of my answers to that would be, have you not seen Jesus? We talk about a lot uh, here at Ellerslie about the cave Bedulam, the cave where David, King David, hid out for 11 years when he was being hunted by Saul. Saul, uh, 21 assassination attempts on David. And where did David spend a good deal of his time? In a cave. You know that his mighty men surrounded him in that cave? David's name means, in the Hebrew, beloved. And David's men were loyal to him. And so here's the mental picture I always have, is that that's a picture of Jesus. You see, we are being called out of the courts of Saul. You see, you, if you curry favor with Saul, you'll, be, you'll have all the comforts of Israel. They're available to you. But if you side with the rightful king, David, he lives in a season of persecution. He's in a cave. Where's David? Oh, he's in the cave. Uh, So give up my nice feather-down pillow for a rock as a pillow? Who would do that? I know it doesn't make any sense, does it? Why would anyone go to the cave? Why would anyone side against all the military powers of Israel to, to just hang out with the guy known as David? Well, first of all, he's the rightful king. But if you knew David, you'd understand why. And the translation is, if you knew Jesus, you'd understand why. To be where Jesus is, 
It's not that our attraction is to live in a cave. That's not the great appeal. It's not that, oh, the great appeal is, and you can have a rock for a pillow. And we're like, oh, sign me up. It's that you can be where he is and never be separated from him for all eternity. The beloved of the beloved. He is the most beautiful, the most fantastic, the most wise, the most holy, the most excellent. And you can have intimate relationship with him and you can be one of his mighty men. I I, I can be with him. I can like share in his life. Yes. I'll do that. Sign me up. We get to be with Jesus. Why do I want to go to heaven? Why do I want to spend eternity outside of this worldly system? Is it for the streets of gold? Which, I mean, that'd be fascinating to see. Is it for the tree of life and all that fruit that's upon it? Oh, I mean, it'd be very interesting to see. Is it because I might be able to swim underwater and breathe underwater? Which it doesn't say in scripture, but imagination can go wild. Or that I might be able to fly? Is that my sales pitch? You know why I want to be there? Because Jesus is there for all eternity. I want to be where he is. And even if heaven was a cave, and it was dark, and there was a rock for a pillow for all eternity, guess what? Sign me up. We do not sign up for Jesus because of the comfort that it brings to our life. Because he's worthy. It's him that is the object of our affection, not what he can give us. He gives us some rather extraordinary things, but that isn't the reasoning. And when you start reasoning based on comfort, you will end up siding with this earth over Jesus. Esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Dying to Egyptian treasure. I remember when I was growing up, the statement was, any college you want to go to, Eric. My uncle went through all the Ivy League schools. He was a Harvard and uh, Yale graduate. So he did his undergraduate, and then he did his graduate work at Yale, I believe. And he took me on a tour of the Ivy League colleges and basically says, you know, Eric, what's attractive to you? My dad said, you know, anywhere you want to go, uh, we'll make it happen. That's how I grew up. I grew up with that mentality. As far as I'm concerned, I had the treasures of Egypt staring me in the face. If the doctor thing doesn't work out, I had uh, a family member in, in, in my family tree uh, that was fairly well-to-do, and I was studying to be a doctor in college, and he made it very clear that, Eric, if this doctor thing doesn't work out, he'd like to go into business with me. And it was like, the dream situation for my soul. He had everything I longed for. Everything. You know, from the multiple houses on the ocean to, you know, the season tickets to everything that I wanted to be watching throughout my every day to the yachts to, to the life. It was the life I wanted. Eric, it's there for you. Eric, if you leave college, you forsake your future. Then what happens to Eric? Eric starts going weird. Eric runs into the freight train of Jesus Christ. See, I grew up a Christian, but I grew up a cool Christian. I grew up a moderate, temperate, lukewarm Christian. One that could fit into this world and never have anyone even think 
that I knew Jesus Christ. Hey, but I still have the insurance policy over here. And if, you know, ever gets bad and Jesus comes back, I can always just make my appeal. I prayed the prayer. So I had it in my hip pocket. But there was no difference between me and the rest of the world. So everything begins to change. And you could say from the world's vantage point, everything began to unravel. I was doing great in college. You know, I was well on my way. If I wanted to do the doctor thing, I was well on my way. Everything was coming together. I had, you know, my uh, family tree situation just sort of sitting there. I was in good shape. And then everything went haywire. I left college to go on the mission field. Well, you know, that didn't translate very well through my family tree. What's he doing? Uh, Doesn't he realize? You know that my counselors at college said to me, if you leave college, you forsake your future. You know that I made a very real choice, which isn't true, by the way. You know that you can go back to college? (laughs) But I tell you what, the weight of it in my soul was so heavy, I had to choose between the treasures of Egypt and Jesus Christ. Because that's what it looked like for me. I mean, literally, it was that clear for me. I knew what God was asking me to do. And I tell you what, with a huge gulp, I turned and I left. Even the author dream. Now, this is just a fast forward through Eric's life in a very quick way. But Leslie and I, I remember when we were first married, we had a conversation. It's like, you know what? If we could be best-selling authors then we could just write books. And, you know, by the way, it's very difficult. You don't just say one day I'm going to be a best-selling author. How do you become a best-selling author? Well, here's what's amazing. We did become best-selling authors. And then guess what God had us do? Basically stab our career in the back because he asked us to write on things that no one would want to publish. Issues that made the publishing industry uncomfortable. And I could not help it. I cannot write about anything else. This is what's weighing on my soul. Well, see ya, Eric and Leslie. Who does that? Who just sticks a knife in their future? Well, you could say it this way. God does. God wants us to be 100% wholly His. And he will challenge us at every turn. No matter what it is, if you're starting to get comfortable, if you're starting to squeeze back onto the edge of that throne, he'll test you on it. Remember Isaac? Abraham? What position does Isaac hold in your life? Prove that I'm first. The dying to sin satisfaction. I remember when I was in uh, missionary school, there was this one question that this one teacher asked. She said, think of your secret sin. Well, I don't really want to think about that. She said, think of your secret sin. It's that one thing that, it's not that you're doing it right now, but it's that one thing that you're most prone to do in a time of weakness. Okay, I knew what mine was. Then she asked this question. Do you hate that secret sin? See, she was teaching on the fear of God, hating what God hates and loving what God loves. And you know what my honest answer was? I didn't answer out loud. I was just thinking it. No, I don't hate it. I just try not to do it. You see, there's a certain satisfaction in sin. 
You ever studied the difference between fasting and surrender? Fasting is giving something up for a period, and then you get it back. Surrender, or dying to something, means to give it up without ever getting it back. And when it comes to sin satisfaction, I want you to realize, are you willing to be dead as a doornail? Which means giving up your love and affection for the things that have made you feel good over the years. And actually beginning to hate that which God hates. Are you willing? I tell you what, I remember actually pondering this through and it was hard. Because it's not that I actually wanted to do it. I just didn't know if I could handle the thought of never doing it again. See, I was still alive. I still was thinking and reasoning from self's vantage point. But what about me? But what about my feelings? But what about my desires? Are you willing to let those go? Never again. Not even a taste. Not even a glance. Not even a hint. Dead as a doornail? Or are you one of those guys that's laying in an open coffin acting like you're dead? When God walks by, you know, like when your parents come home and you're acting like you're asleep? You're just sort of acting like you're dead. You're playing dead Christianity. When in actuality, you're fully alive. Are we willing to allow God to do his work? Crosses kill. They remove the life from a man. And we have an old man, an old Marley, that is supposed to be dead as a doornail. So that the new man, Jesus Christ, can live within us. The new man cannot live if the old man isn't dead. The dying to self-importance. Is it true that the Christian life isn't about us? I mean, I have a lot to offer. If, If people could just see me, God, I think I could then turn them to you because they'll be impressed with me. They're not really that impressed with you. So I can help curry favor heavenward. This was some of my reasoning, by the way, when I was really wrestling with this coolness issue. God wasn't cool, but Eric was. You know, I, I was, people liked me. That's like a past tense statement. Some people still do. Thank you, Ben. Uh, are you willing to win people to Jesus God's way and not play the cool game to win them, which puts you at the center. You become God's important piece. And without you and your connections and your way and your manner and your cool attitude, no one would ever find Jesus. Huh. To become a true Christian means to exit the corridors of mainstream mainstream influence. It means that my opinion is now an extreme position and not a common view. It means I'm now one of those crazies with a narrow, biased, prejudiced perspective. Is that true? No. But you have to accept it right from the beginning. You know what? People don't come to me in this world and ask me who should be the next president of the United States. You know what? The Republican National Committee doesn't care what Eric says about it, which is obvious with their conclusions. They don't care what I think. And for the most part, they probably don't care what you think. Now, if you play the fence, you can be moral and esteem Jesus off to the side. You can be elected. 
Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Yeah, you can pull it off. Throw some, you know, waft a little respect that way down the corridors of Christianity, but then live for self. It's an abomination. And we cannot accept it in the church of Jesus Christ. And guess who now has an extreme position? Yeah, I do. It's just, just what it says in the Bible. Not extreme, radical. Well, is God, I guess, is extreme and radical. Because that's what it says. And here I stand. It means the world no longer caters to me to win my vote, to please my palate, and to make me feel at home in this world. I'm suddenly the lowly minority with ever-decreasing clout in the world's schematic. From politics to movie producing to music selection from, back, from background music in coffee shops. My view is considered fringe. I don't know how many of you want to have the fringe opinion. I used to always be the mainstream opinion. Always. In fact, I used to make comments like, you know what, there's a whole bunch of people like me out there that are looking for movies like this and this. There's a whole bunch of people like me that would prefer to have the music playing in the background at Starbucks to be this or this. And you know what? To be honest, I was rather mainstream. And my opinion counted. But then Eric kept getting more and more weird. To the point where now Eric's opinion is fringe. And I don't really like my opinion being fringe. Am I willing to die to my self-importance? Hey, my opinion counts. I have a vote too. Am I willing to die to my self-importance? That Eric's opinion should sway the masses. God's opinion is what matters. And I'll side with him, even if he is completely and wholly rejected in this age. And they call God's opinion fringe. I just hope and pray that I'm with him. How are you voting, God? All right, so am I. What music are you listening to, God? All right, I'm listening to it too. What does God want? That's all that matters to me. The dying to the cool persona. I need to give up the swagger and the deep, bassy voice. This is the history of Eric Ludi. The girls won't find me attractive. Oh, no. And the decisions that we need to make, are we willing to make them for Jesus' sake not to be attractive? The guys won't consider me part of the brotherhood anymore. People may think that I'm one of those... uh, homeschooler types. You know that I was speaking at a homeschool conference uh, quite a while ago, and they proudly announced that Eric Ludi was a homeschool graduate. I swallowed it, took it. I'm proud. I'm proud that you would consider me uh, one of yours. The dying to the someday's. This is a hard one. The dying to the someday's. How many times do we think, well, someday we'll be able to do this? How many of us have our, you know, marriages and we're like, we dream. Oh, it's fun. It's fun to dream about our kids growing up. It's fun to dream about what can be done for the kingdom. It's not a bad thing. But are we willing to let those go daily? You know that I could die today for Jesus Christ? You know how hard it is to die when you still have some someday's lingering? It's like, ah, Could you take them instead of me? Because I have some some days. Some some days where I have a dream with my wife that in the next five years we're going to do this. Oh, it's going to be so powerful for the kingdom. And so guess who's not available to die today? Yeah. 
I pushed you in front of me. Is that Jesus? No! Jesus forsook his someday's for a greater someday. He does still have a someday, but he had to switch it out for the greater one. Marriage. From the single perspective. Okay, this is a confusing list, I know, as we go through it. But marriage. Some of you that are single in here, what's your someday? I could be married someday. Well, there's one of your someday's. That's a hard one. I know. Okay, and you're like, you're married, Eric. You're cheating. You can't give a message and tell me to give up my someday of marriage. Well, guess what? Mine, as far as I'm concerned, is harder. Because I am married, and guess who I need to give up? I need to lay down Leslie and my kids daily. You know how hard that is? To make myself willing to say, God, if you want to take me, it's your business. My life is dead as a doornail to all me. I live to you. That's hard. So let's each swallow the pill we have today in this message. The single perspective, are you willing to give up your someday? Someday I'll walk down that aisle or someday I'll be at the head of the aisle. This is the music that will play. My father will give me away or I'll be the one to, you know, you know show her, you know, the man. Whatever your perspective is in it, your someday, that honeymoon in the future, that riding off into the sunset, the kids you could one day have. The marriage, the already married perspective. I think I just gave it. Children, from the single perspective. You know what? If you give your life to Jesus Christ and you're dead as a doornail, yeah, you may go off to North Korea and your life may be ended sooner than later. You may not get married. You may not have children. Are you willing to follow Jesus even if you have to give up the some days? That's the question that is laid before us today. I know it's hard, but do you know your Jesus? Children, the married and not yet had children perspective. So these are the people that are married and haven't yet had children. You know, that's an extremely difficult one to give up. You're married and you haven't yet had children. And then to have to face this and say, and God, I'm willing. I'm willing if I don't even get children. There's probably some of you in here going, oh, that was an easy one. I wasn't wanting children anyways. Well, maybe for you, it's that you get 20. Uh, (laughs) Children, the already have children perspective. When you have children, I want you to realize this is a painful question. The some days with your children. You just can't be a father or a mother without loving your children. And without desiring to grow old and gray and see your children grow up and flourish in their masculinity or their femininity. I want to see my children live well for Jesus Christ. Am I willing to give up being able to witness it? Am I even be able to give up the fact that my children will go, grow old and flourish? I want them, even if it's young, I want them to flourish, but to not grow old. That their lives would be snuffed out at a younger age because of their obedience to Jesus Christ. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't know exactly what exact age Jesus was, but let's say 33-something. That's young. And his life is spilled out. There's so much more he could have done. Yeah, sure. But he was obedient unto the Father. All the other grand possibilities life boasts. Oh, there's so many things we could do. So many places we could see. Oh, I want to go to Scotland. 
And I want to see, you know, these different castles and read the Scottish chiefs as I'm going throughout the, 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 the land. Oh, it'd be fun. It's a someday. My someday is transferred and exchanged out for Jesus. He's my someday. He's the great replacement for all of that. I have everything in him. The dying to tomorrow. See, it's one thing to die to the someday. But what about the fact that you could have a tomorrow? We expect it. Of course we're going to be alive tomorrow. Yeah. Why wouldn't we be? What a downer message this is, Eric. No, I'm not saying you won't be around tomorrow. I'm saying are you willing to die to tomorrow? That you won't have a long life. That you won't be around tomorrow. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know how many places on earth that if you choose Jesus today, you die today? You need to understand how the kingdom of heaven works. You have to die. You have to relinquish the someday's and the tomorrow. Who is better than the tomorrow? Jesus. Are you willing to give up the tomorrow? This is a hard one. I was swallowing this one this week. Because this is, this is a heavy-duty one for me, too. Am I willing to give up the tomorrow? What if there is no goodbye season? See, when you get you know, diagnosed with some disease, it's like, yeah, he has two weeks to live. Well, guess what? You have two weeks to say goodbye. Are you willing to give up the goodbye season? You didn't even get a chance to call people up, to write letters, to do anything. Are you willing to give that up? By the way, it'll make you very serious about saying it now when you think this way. What if there is no forewarning? Are you willing to accept that? Or are you going to mumble and grumble about it in heaven? Are you willing to say, I don't care how it comes. I trust my Jesus. What if there are still things unsaid and undone? You see, if there is something still unsaid and undone, and you need to make a choice, which way are you going to go? Are you willing to say, I trust Jesus. My life is dead as a doornail. The dying to fantastical final breaths. This is a hard one for me. I have this vision of what it's going to be like when I expire. I'll be giving a great speech. You know, my voice will crack and I'll plea. You know, and people will come to Christ. Am I willing to even give up the fantastical final breath? You know that a lot of great men and women have been just thrown off to the side of a road dead in a ditch. Because they live in a country that has no reverence for the God they served. And their way of showing contempt for it is to treat your body as the carcass of a dog. God doesn't treat you that way. But I want you to realize men may. And yes, there may not be any great story that comes of it. And Christians and history to come might cover up that part of the story and say, yes, and he passed away. They don't want to mention the fact that, yes, your body just rotted in a ditch. Are we willing? What if there is no time for a great moving speech? What if I die in a concentration camp and my body is unceremoniously thrown into a garbage pile? I know. These aren't wonderful thoughts. I'm saying, are you dead? Because these are the reasons. These are, maybe I should say it this way. These are the things that prove we're very much alive. We have rights. We have feelings. God wouldn't do that to me. You serve Jesus Christ. You could say the father would never do that to his son. Jesus means business down here on this earth. Our God has an agenda. And he makes it very clear to us 
that we follow without questions. And that yes, we will suffer. We will face much tribulation. We will endure great persecution. We expect it from the onset. We come to Jesus and we relinquish any control over our life. He owns it. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Remember this word? Stigma. It's a mark pricked in or branded upon the body. To ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander branded or pricked or cut into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belonged to. Now, in the end, it talks about a mark, you know, forehead, back of hand. I want you to realize, you can bear the stigma now. You don't need to wait. You're not supposed to be an open canvas without a mark. You're supposed to have a mark. You don't wait for the mark. And when, you know, that one mark of the beast comes and you're just like, you know what? I have room. You're already marked. You're already taken. Choose today who you will serve. I am marked by my commander. You're a soldier and a slave. There's a brand on you. Lift up your shirt and say, see? The brand of Jesus is upon me. I belong to him. He is my master. A brand doesn't feel good. Yeah, it's not necessarily something that's that exciting to think of getting. But I tell you what, may the world know who you stand for. May there be no confusion. Are you with them or are you with him? Who are you with? As for me and my house, we will be branded by Jesus. And may that be the statement that reverberates through the church of Jesus Christ in our age. And let's start here. We are not after the approval of this world. We are not expecting them to curry our favor. We're not expecting them to come to us and ask us our opinion. We'll probably give them our opinion even when they don't ask for it. We're Christians and we have a message to give. And it's the message of the King of Kings. They may not want to hear it, and they may run away with their ears plugged, but guess what? We still speak. And guess what? We expect that they may do very harmful, disastrous things to us as a result of our stand. But we serve King Jesus. We don't serve our own comfort. This is for him, not for them. But when we serve him, guess what? The them are able to see Jesus in turn and escape the world as well. We do love them, but because we love him. He is our priority. We make him the fixation of our souls, and guess what he'll do? He'll turn our head to see the dying world, and he'll say, I love them so much that I gave. Would you allow my love to course through you so that you would give up your life for them as well? but we don't kowtow to the world to love them well. Jesus did not give up his purity. He did not give up his holiness. He did not give up his integrity to reach the world. He was in the world, but he was not of it. You are in the world. Of all places, you're in the world, but you cannot be of it. You cannot bear its mark. You cannot bear its 
coolness. You're supposed to be red hot for Jesus Christ. Father, I have no idea how these guys are doing after that. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give them grace. You would encourage them. That they would transact with you. That they would truly allow you to take them to that death today. Lord, that they would freshly relinquish the controls of their life, the expectations of their life. And they would say to, say to God, be the glory. Lord, no matter what it costs us, I pray that we'd be made ready. It's in the precious name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.